0: Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking at 1 Corinthians chapters 9 through 13. And beyond what you already have in the Come, Follow Me manual, just a few things I'd love to mention that are interesting to me. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses this little metaphor here in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth a prize, so run that ye may obtain. You know, as Jesus taught parables, he may have looked around, scanned the horizon, seen sower sowing, and came up with a parable about maybe things that he was seeing. Well, in Corinth, there is an isthmus around the, uh, the southern part of Greece called the Peloponnese, if I'm saying that right. In fact, they tried to build a canal over it, but didn't have the, the technology, the manpower to do it back then. They finally completed it in the late 1800s, but they had on this isthmus the Isthmian games, and they were second only to the Olympic games in their popularity. And people would come and camp there and stop there. Perhaps one of the reasons Paul stayed with Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila if that's how you say it, that we read about in the beginning of Acts chapter 18, is that they were tent makers. Paul was also a tent maker. And I wonder if being a tent maker was a really smart occupation to have when the Isthmian games were in town, and a lot of people came to, to watch the games. Remember also that it was a huge trading port. As ships would come to one side of the Isthmus, the ships would be loaded onto wheels and onto a road called the Dioclose and would be wheeled across the Isthmus, saving them a couple of hundred miles from going the long way around and some times of the year in treacherous weather. So here's the Isthmian games. There's tons of people there. They're spending money. If you think of it kind of as Las Vegas, they're spending money on other things. <laughs> and Paul says, verse 24, "'Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth a prize, so run that ye may obtain. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things.' Now they do it, perhaps these Olympians or Isthmian Games participants, to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. See, I'm running for a different reason. I'm running the spiritual metaphor. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Just a fun kind of thing that, oh, that's why Paul's talking about this, because he's at the site of the Ithsmian games. Okay, going on to, I want to go to chapter 11, not to bankruptcy, but 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse, and a lot of uh, t- times we focus in chapter 11 on things that are being talked about for kind of dress and grooming standards for women. Please remember that sometimes the culture creeps into the scriptures, and this could be just a cultural thing about long hair, short hair, covering your hair, things like that. We don't worry about such things today so much. But chapter 11, verse 11 is a powerful verse reminding us of Paul's, Paul's feelings about eternal marriage. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. And this reminded me of a parable that President Boyd K. Packer gave in October of 1993, General Conference, the talk is called For Time and All Eternity, and he said, I close with a parable. Once a man received as his inheritance two keys. The first key, he was told, would open a vault, which he must protect at all costs. The second key was to a safe within the vault which contained a priceless treasure. He was to open this safe and freely use the precious things which were stored therein. He was warned that many would seek to rob him of his inheritance. He was promised that if he used the treasure worthily, it would be replenished and never be diminished, not in all eternity. He would be tested. If he used it to benefit others, his own blessings and joy would increase. The man went alone to the vault. His first key opened the door. He tried to unlock the treasure with the other key, but he could not. For there were two locks on the safe. His key alone would not open it. No matter how he tried, he could not open it. He was puzzled. He had been given the keys. He knew the treasure was rightfully his. He had obeyed the instructions, but he could not open the safe. In due time, there came a woman into the vault. She too held a key. It was noticeably different from the key he held, Her key fit the other lock. It humbled him to learn he could not obtain his rightful inheritance without her. They made a covenant that together they would open the treasure, and as instructed, he would watch over the vault and protect it. She would watch over the treasure. She was not concerned that, as guardian of the vault, he held two keys, for his full purpose was to see that she was safe as she watched over that which was most precious to them both. Together they opened the safe and partook of their inheritance. They rejoiced, for as promised, it replenished itself. With great joy they found they could pass the treasure on to their children. Each could receive a full measure undiminished to the last generation. Perhaps some of a few of their posterity would not find a companion who possessed the complimentary key, or one worthy and willing to keep the covenants relating to the treasure. Nevertheless, if they kept the commandments, they would not be denied even the smallest blessing. Because some tempted them to misuse their treasure, they were careful to teach their children about keys and covenants. There came in due time among their posterity some few who were deceived or jealous or selfish, because one was given two keys and another only one. Why, the selfish ones reasoned, cannot the treasure be mine alone, to use as I desire? some tried to reshape the key they had been given to resemble the other key perhaps they thought it would then fit both locks. and so it was that the safe was closed to them and so it was that the safe was closed to them their reshaped keys were useless and their inheritance was lost those who received the treasure with gratitude and obeyed the laws concerning it knew joy without bounds through time and eternity i'll just leave you to think about that parable and what it means once again that was october of 1993 i repeat the words of paul nevertheless neither is the man without the woman neither the woman without the man in the lord please focus on that as you read this more than little things about dress codes or and i think later coming on how chapter 11 verse 5 every woman that prayeth or prophesieth and then it talks about the dress code which tells us that women prayed and prophesied in church. So there's other verses that sound contradictory to that, but focus on those verses. Now the last thing and the most important thing here to me is first Corinthians thirteen. 1 Corinthians twelve speaks about a lot of different spiritual gifts. Also section forty-six and moroni chapter ten speak about spiritual gifts. But here in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, and remember the dividing of the chapters is something that came later in history, but I love how this one starts. I mean, these are often repeated, powerful verses. First Corinthians 13, 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So first of all, the gift of tongues may be being referenced here. It's very outward and visible and it may look very impressive and you may think, wow, that person is really spiritual, really gifted because they can speak with the gift of tongues. And Paul says, though I speak with tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And I'm going to come back to sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. There are no footnotes on that. I've heard some commentaries say, I'm just nothing but noise, meaningless noise. But let's continue with this idea of uh, charity. Verse 2. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Incredible. All knowledge, gift of prophecy, but any of those without charity... They don't mean anything. They're nothing. Now, the thing I wanted to spend my time on here, which is so interesting in a cultural sense, is that idea of sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. So, here is a website that you can go to, and I'll just read it out. It's baslibrary.org. BAS means Biblical Archaeology Society. baslibrary.org Forward slash, meaning the top part of the slash is moving from left to right, forward slash biblical hyphen archaeology hyphen review, forward slash. So that's a magazine. This is an online archive of Biblical Archaeology Society magazine. So baslibrary.org slash biblical hyphen archaeology hyphen review slash forward slash eight, forward slash one forward slash five. The article is called Sounding Brass and Hellenistic Technology. I first heard this idea when I was in a theater at Caesarea Maritime or Maritimi, some people, I can't remember what they call it. But it's right on the coast there of the Mediterranean, coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea, the west coast of Israel. And we're in a big theater there And I heard this idea discussed. I'm going to read to you from this Biblical Archaeology Society article. And I I printed it out. I think I had to log in and sign, sign up or something. But it wasn't. I think it was free. Anyway, if not, I'll send it to you. Okay, here it says. Okay, one interpreter thinks the phrase refers to the clanging of armor or men girding themselves for battle. Still other sources contend that Chalkos, the the uh, Hebrew for sounding brass, refers to the trumpet of Cybele, and the passage relates to the cults of Cybele and Dionysius, especially at Corinth. Without love, the passage from 1 Corinth seems to be saying, I am like a pagan cult. Now, there was somebody named Vitruvius who wrote a book called On Architecture, and the author of this article, William Harris, said, I believe that this article allows us to be even more specific. Vitruvius was a practicing Roman architect in the last part of the 1st century BC. And this is what they had in their theaters. I'm editing a little bit here. Vitruvius described certain brass-sounding vases used in theaters at the time, including the theater in Corinth, to amplify the sound of the actors' and singers' voices. I think Paul refers to these brass-sounding vases in 1 Corinthians, when he spoke of Chalkos echon, or what has been translated as sounding brass, Vitruvius described the problem of projecting voices in the theater and the consequent development of brass-sounding vases. Vitruvius described the sounding vases in some detail. The vases, each having a tuned response, were arranged in niches at the back of the amphitheater. Thirteen were equally spaced, inverted, and placed on blocks to allow sufficient airspace beneath. The acoustic amplifiers of the Hellenistic theaters, and certainly the famous theater at Corinth, speak for the emptiness of the Hellenistic world, which had far more voice than inner meaning. So, I I skipped around a little bit in here, but just remember that... The actors on a stage, without amplifiers, without speakers, without microphones, would project as loud as they could. But these these brass vases that were, I think, partially filled with water would somehow pick up the sound and resonate it and echo it, according to this article. And maybe this is what Paul meant. You are like sounding brass. Remember also that the Hebrew for hypocrite, it means an actor, an actor on a stage. And so if you have all those other things but don't have charity, maybe you're like an actor on a stage and the noise you make is just meaningless. It's those echo chambers. So going back to the, the article here, In this phrase, Paul seems to be saying, without love, I am as empty as the acoustic amplifiers in the Greek theaters, full of sound, but literally saying nothing in the decadent years of Hellenic achievement. The parallel phrase, clashing symbol" may be interpreted as referring to the Hebrew tradition because it appears in the Septuagint, which was known to Paul. This tradition, too, had ceased to be real for Paul. The joining of the words echoing bronze and clashing cymbal summarizes metaphorically two poles of experience now meaningless to Paul. So, hopefully that's interesting to you. I found it absolutely fascinating that he was referring to real amplifiers that they had, but that were would amplify the sound of hypocrites. Or actors on a stage. And in this article, there's even illustrations of some of these vases up around the actors. This, perhaps, the meaning of sounding brass. So to give you some more on this, to go from merriam-webster.com, under the word hypocrite, it says this. The word hypocrite ultimately came into English from the Greek word hypocrites uh, h y p-o-k-r-i-t-e-s which means an actor or stage player the greek word itself is a compound noun it's made up of two greek words that literally translate as an interpreter from underneath that bizarre compound makes more sense when you know the actors in greek theater wore large masks to mark which character they were playing and so they interpreted the story from underneath their masks the greek word took on an extended meaning to refer to any person who who was wearing a figurative mask and pretending to be someone or something they were not. This sense was taken into medieval French and then into English, where it showed up with its earlier spelling, hypocrite without an H, hypocrite, in 13th century religious texts, to refer to someone who pretends to be morally good or pious in order to deceive others. It took a surprisingly long time for hypocrite, the word, to gain its more general meaning that we use today, person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. Our first citations for this use are from the early 1700s, nearly 500 years after hypocrite stepped onto English's stage. So, with that idea and the sounding brass, it just really enriches our understanding of Paul telling us that those gifts, even the gift of tongues, which is so outward and visible and impressive, is nothing but meaningless noise if there is no charity there. Some of these gifts in this life will end. I don't think we'll need the gift of tongues when we get to the next life. So we go to verse 13. Well, let's start in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see through a a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. So all those other gifts will eventually end like the gift of tongues, Maybe not all of them, but some of them. But what Paul is saying is, but faith, hope, and charity, those will abide. So anyway, I hope that's been interesting to you today, especially with a little cultural backdrop. Hope you can find that biblical archaeology article and learn about Sounding Brass. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.